This episode of Cheat Codes, a Sickle Cell podcast, is intended for informational and entertainment purposes only. This episode of Cheat Codes was supported by Global Blood Therapeutics. What's up, Warriors? It's me, Dr. Z. And me, Dr. C. Dr. C, I, um, I've been hearing about this guest of ours from you for a little bit now. Yeah, I'm excited. We have another Dr. Z. You know, it made me a little jealous, honestly, if I'm being honest with us here. Uh, I was a little jealous of another Dr. Z. I quite like the notoriety, but uh, the more and more I heard about the other Dr. Z from you, the more and more I, uh, I understood why you were so excited. So why don't, you tell our, why don't you tell our warriors a little bit about the other Dr. Z? Yeah, so I was listening to a third uh, Dr. Z podcast, uh, Z-Dog, who's you know famous for internet memes and funny videos, but he has a great podcast too. And he had on uh, Dr. Rachel Zofnis, also Dr. Z, who is a pain and health psychologist, medical consultant, and author, and an expert on non-pharmacologic approaches to pain management. She works as an assistant professor at UCSF, and she teaches pain to medical residents and works in in psychology there. She's also involved in a number of societies around around pain, and she wrote some books. One of them that I ordered um, called a Chronic Pain and Illness Workbook for Teens that I, I thought could be really helpful for a lot of our patients. And when I listened to her on the other Dr. Z's podcast, uh, I, I heard a lot of things I thought would be great for cheat codes, and uh, so... Dr. Z, welcome. It's great to have you on Cheat Coats. Thank you guys for having me on. And um, I'd like to say that there's an abundance, apparently, of Dr. Z's. I thought I was unique, but (laughs) (laughs) we've mentioned now three in the last 30 seconds. So we are not unique. It's depressing. Right? I know. I'm glad you feel the same way. uh, (laughs) It's kind of annoying, but I'm glad you're on. um, And we have a lot to talk about, obviously, because sickle cell disease and pain go hand in hand. You know, it's it's something that it's it's a daily part of our our sickle cell patients' lives, and we we have uh, so many challenges around managing pain in our warriors with sickle cell, and you know I, I think like a lot of places we've focused a lot on you know medical causes of pain, and certainly there are a lot of them in sickle cell disease, but we we focus less on what our Dr. Z likes to call the biopsychosocial aspects. And we know pain is such a um, complex phenomenon and involves, you know, so, so many aspects of what's going on with the patients, whether it's anxiety or other things going on in their life, also the, the medical disease. And the approaches really shouldn't be all pharmacologic. Um, so I, I, I really liked uh, what you had to say about this. And, and I think one of the first things I heard that I thought was great is, you know, we need to discuss what pain is with our patients. And I think everybody thinks they know what pain is, but I think you had a little different perspective on it. So Dr. Z, what is pain? Yeah. So I'll, I'll say first, full disclosure, I do not have sickle cell, but I was a kid with chronic pain. And I think like most adults, I've had episodes of chronic pain. So um, I think it is actually useful and important to be a provider who's been inside of it. I think all of us get frustrated when we're talked at by people who we feel don't necessarily understand what we're going through. I'll also say that um, I find it really frustrating, bordering on infuriating that most of us are never taught what pain is or how it works, despite the fact that it's this ubiquitous human phenomenon. You know, we, we all have had pain, and especially if you're living with sickle cell, 
like Dr. Z said, there's always pain. It's just part of your life. It's part of your daily experience. So the best way to treat pain and target pain is to understand what it is and what it's not. So I'll say, you know, just to to be emphatic about it, pain is not a biomedical process. It's never purely biomedical. And what I mean by that is it's never this thing that only has to do with your body. It's never this thing that is only exclusively treated with pills and procedures. If we treat it that way, our pain will never resolve. So um, I'm a nerd. I try and tell everyone in advance that I'm a nerd, like a capital N nerd. Yeah, so I've gone down the rabbit hole with this. So I've read all the science so that you guys don't have to. Um, And what we know about pain is that it's a biopsychosocial phenomenon. What does that word actually mean? What it means is if you imagine this Venn diagram with three bubbles, like there's the biological or biomedical domain of pain, and that's the one we all know about, the one we hear about the most. It's you know, genetics and tissue damage and system dysfunction and all of those delightful things that come along with sickle cell. But then there's other, there's two other bubbles when it comes to pain. There's the psychological domain of pain. And that one, of course, has so much stigma attached to it, right? Like, don't talk to me about psychology. My pain is real. My pain is organic. Why are you bringing up this word? Literally, all that word means is there, what science tells us is that there are cognitive components to pain, that your brain matters when it comes to the production of this thing we call pain. That your emotions matter also. Your limbic system, which is your brain's emotion center, processes this thing we call pain. So all the sensations from your body filter through your brain's emotion center before they can become this thing we call pain. So your emotions are really important in the production and reduction of pain. And that, of course, lives in this psychological bubble. And then also in this psychology bubble are coping behaviors. And what I mean by that is how you manage your pain matters. It matters. When you stay inside and stay in bed for months and years at a time and you don't move your body and you don't engage in hobbies and you don't see your friends and you don't have a life, what science tells us is that that actually amplifies the pain you feel. Pain feels worse when we stay inside and restrict our lives because of the pain. So all of those things live in this psychology bubble that has unfortunately so much stigma around it. And then there's this third bubble, which is the social or the sociological domain of pain. And in that bubble, which confused me a lot when I first started doing all this pain nerdiness and research, is the following information. Your social behavior also impacts your pain and other sociological factors do too, like socioeconomic status and access to care and culture, race and ethnicity, and your environment. Your environment around you also impacts the pain you feel. So if you've ever been on um, a pediatric unit in a hospital, you'll notice that the walls are colorfully painted and there's big stuffies everywhere. And that's because environment matters. And research shows this over and over and over again, that when you're in a comforting, soothing, safe environment, your brain turns down the pain alarm. And when you're in an, a chaotic, terrifying, scary environment, your brain amplifies the pain alarm. So your experience of pain all the time lives in the middle of these three domains, the biological, the psychological, and the sociological. So when we think about pain, if we're only treating the biomedical components, if we're only looking at the physiological and physical issues and treating them with pills and procedures, 
we're actually missing two-thirds of the pain problem. We're not adequately treating your pain. That's wow. so important. And I, I think, you know, you brought up, and, and we see this all the time, sometimes when we try to approach this and we say, you know, there's other things we need to think about. Maybe we could think of different approaches. Maybe we want to have the psychologist talk to you. Sometimes people feel like we're, you know, diminishing their pain or we're saying, oh, you're crazy. And we're not saying that at all. We're saying that there's, you know, different approaches to this. You know, how how you come to, to the physio- physiologic uh, issue that's causing your pain affects how you feel it. And I, I don't know if it was you or it was someone else... Uh, where I heard these stories, there were two stories back to back. One was about a guy with a nail gun. I think they <laughs> both were. Was that you who told those stories? Yes. The, those we call were, those, those a tale. We call them a tale of two nails because we like rhymes. Tale of two nails. <laughs> yeah, I, I'll botch it. Could you could you update us on the tale of two nails? <laughs> sure, sure. So I again. I warned you in advance, nerd capital N. When I explain pain, because it's so misunderstood and mistreated and mistaught, I like to use examples from the clinical literature. So there are these two papers that came out in scientific medical journals that reported on these two separate cases, and both of them were construction workers. Apparently, that's the most dangerous, painful job you can have. And there was one construction worker that jumped off a plank straight onto a seven-inch nail, and the nail went through his boot and came clear throughout the other side. And there's this picture in the journal of this you know, black leather boot with this huge nail sticking out of the top. And the man was in terrible pain and he was screaming and his, you know, his colleagues carted him off to the hospital and he was sedated with intravenous opioids to help his pain. And of course they removed his boot. And when they took off his boot, they discovered that a miracle had occurred. The nail had passed between the space between his toes there was no tissue damage, there was no puncture wound, there was no blood, but the pain was real. How is that possible? His brain, which by the way is your danger detector, because brain, the brain is actually the part of your body that processes pain, not your back and not your foot and not your arm. His brain used all available information, like knowledge of the of past injuries and his dangerous work environment and visual information like this visual that he had of the nail sticking out of the top of his boot. And so his brain created pain to protect him because that's your brain's job. It's your danger detector and it exists for many reasons, but in part to determine whether or not to make pain and how much. So you know, like every system in the human body, the pain system also can fail. The pain system is also imperfect. So that's tale number one. Tale number two, there was another construction worker on a job site and he was using a nail gun and it accidentally fired. And he saw a nail go shooting across the room and bury into the wall, but the nail gun ricocheted backwards and clocked him in the head as the nail, you know, exited the gun. And he had a headache and a mild toothache, but he continued on with work and life for six days. And at the end of six days, he turned to his wife and said, you know what, I am going to get this toothache checked out. It's no bueno. He went to the dentist. The dentist did a scan of his head. And I wish I could show you the picture. Much to both men's surprise, they discovered a four-inch nail embedded in his face in his face there was a nail and you could see the tip of it actually protruding into his brain so it's real danger and real damage but very little pain how is that possible his brain again your danger detector used all available information 
danger of the knowledge of the dangerous work environment but it also used this visual of the nail shooting across the room so because his brain believed his body was safe it produced very little pain and again this just highlights for us this really critical concept for everybody living with pain which is that hurt which is the pain that you feel and harm which is damage to your body are not necessarily the same thing and it gets really complicated with sickle cell because we have two things happening we have this chronic pain process and we also have acute pain processes happening and what I mean by that is chronic pain is pain that lasts for three months or longer and acute pain are these short intense pain episodes and people living with sickle cell you know have both of these things sort of co-occurring but it just seems so important to talk about the fact that pain is this thing created by the brain and the pain alarm is not always accurate. Yeah, I think it's interesting. I mean, sickle cell is sort of like having that four-inch nail in your head, but if you can somehow convince yourself that it shot across the room, you can maybe hurt less. And so is that is that what these CBT and mindfulness techniques are doing? They're they're taking something that, you know, is objectively a painful stimulus and is causing you pain, but you can you know, trick your mind into taking some of the danger signal away from it and hurt less, feel it less? Um, I would say no, and I'll tell you why. All right. It is impossible to trick very smart people into believing something that they don't organically, you know, believe to be true. But what we do, yeah, so, so I should say, um, nobody believes in pain psychology. let me say that differently. Nobody wants to see a psychologist for pain because because of that thing you said before, right? It just, you get this feeling that someone's saying you're crazy or the pain is all in your head. And of course, that's not what you guys are saying at all. But I think when we don't understand pain, it's very easy to believe that that's the message that's being communicated. So you cannot trick people into believing that their pain isn't real. Like, if, of course, like your pain is real all the time. If you're in pain, your pain is real, period, end of sentence. However, the important piece of cognitive behavioral therapy, which is what I do, and the other things that we do in pain psychology, is helping turn down the brain's pain volume. And you can do that in lots of ways. So what we know about pain is that stress and anxiety turn up and amplify pain volume. So whatever pain you had before when you're stressed or anxious, your pain is going to physically feel worse. The other thing we know about pain is that negative emotions and when you have like a bad mood or you're depressed or you're angry, negative emotions amplify pain volume. And we also know that focusing on pain, like staying home, reducing activity, that also turns up pain volume. So a lot of the things that we do in CBT for pain are we use all of these strategies and techniques to lower the brain's alarm, pain alarm. So you know, all those things I mentioned, the opposite is also true. So when your body is relaxed, your muscles are relaxed, and your thoughts are calm, pain volume is turned down. When your emotions are positive, when you're experiencing joy or engaged in pleasurable activities, or you're feeling gratitude, or you're, you're managing or navigating your emotions, your pain alarm will be turned down, pain volume is lower. And the third is like attentional and cognitive processes. So we know that if we're focusing on the thoughts you're thinking, and if we're focusing on where you're 
focusing your attention like on your pain versus getting absorbed in some distracting activities, we can also navigate or change the pain you feel. So a lot of the strategies we use in CBT aren't trying to trick you and aren't trying to convince you that your pain isn't as bad as you think it is. It's more, there are real strategies we can use to change the way your brain processes your pain. So we can focus on stress and anxiety and we can focus on mood management and we can focus on these cognitive strategies where we're thinking about our thinking and we're noticing the things we're thinking and how those thoughts can amplify or dampen down your pain to actually change, really authentically change your pain experience. Did that make sense the way I said that? Yeah, absolutely. I I think, you know, sometimes we say, oh, we should try these CBT techniques and people say, oh, that marijuana stuff, that sounds cool. And then we're like, no, no, cognitive (laughs) behavioral therapy. And they're like, what? I don't know about that. Um, but I, I think it's it's a big name. But a lot of the things are things that, y- you know, you, you might talk to your four-year-old about when they're having a problem. Like, you know, take some deep breaths. Take your mind off of it. Play this game. Distract yourself. So what, what are some of the, the CBT techniques that you, you try to encourage people to use? And how do you get them started on it? And, you know... I think it's got a big name, but a lot of it is maybe just common sense stuff that we should be doing. Yeah, I think it is. It's confusing for people when you hear this cognitive behavioral therapy thing. You're like, what is that? And what does that have to do with my real physical organic problem? Right. And so I think you make a really good point. So just to say, I know you mentioned this at the beginning. Pain psychology is often not affordable for our patients because the system is broken and insurance reimbursement is broken and nothing makes me angrier. So actually, I stuck everything that I do in my practice in two books. One is the chronic pain and illness workbook for teens and that's for kids yeah i, b- and then I they- bought a copy of that and, uh, dr I, mike I that's might- a huge compliment <laughs> i think we might buy a bunch more for some of our teenage yeah. patients because i think it could be really helpful that is a huge compliment i appreciate that a lot especially coming from someone like you and then the other one is called the pain management workbook and that one just came out and it's for adults living with all kinds of pain but there's a million things that we do in cbt that absolutely have been shown by the literature to change the pain you feel and lower pain volume. And and we try and make the strategies approachable for kids and also for teenagers and also for adults because who doesn't deserve to understand and manage their pain, right? So I'm always trying to use language that people can understand of all ages. So there's a ton of strategies. Um, we use a lot of behavioral strategies in CBT. So what I mean by that is I always ask the people, I treat, you know, youth, but also adults with pain. And I always ask people who come in my door, what are you doing to manage your pain and how is it working? And you, the reason I ask that question is usually by the time people get in my door, like I said, no one wants to see a psychologist for pain. So if they're coming to see me, they're probably pretty desperate. They probably tried a lot of things and the things aren't working. So I always ask, how's that working for you? That's part A. Part B is what do we need to do differently to change the pain you feel? What are the factors, the biopsychosocial factors that might be amplifying your pain experience? So a lot of people are living, for example, in a chaotic, high conflict home environment. Guess what? That is going to amplify the pain you feel. And maybe one of the things we need to do actually is take charge of your home environment and change the amount of conflict and stress you have at home. That is a non-trivial pain management technique and one that often gets ignored. Um, A lot of behavioral strategies focus, again, on behavior. So a lot of us are stuck inside and not engaging in pleasurable activities or hobbies or movement when we have pain. And we know that science says that engaging in hobbies, engaging in pleasurable activities, 
seeing friends, moving our bodies actually will lower pain volume. So a lot of the strategies focus on behavior change. A lot of the focus uh, strategies focus on lifestyle. So lifestyle medicine, by that I mean, what is, what's going on with sleep? Sleep has a profound impact on the pain you feel. And a lot of people living with chronic pain, understandably have a lot of trouble falling asleep or staying asleep. It's a major problem in the chronic pain world. So there's a huge there's like a lot of literature on sleep hygiene for pain. So that's in the books also. Like how do you change your sleep to change your pain? Nutrition, of course, affects the pain you feel also. What are you putting in your body? What you put in your body is going to affect output. Um, we also use a lot of relaxation strategies and distraction strategies and cognitive strategies. Again, going after thoughts. When we have pain, especially for long periods of time, our thoughts become very negative and often catastrophic. By that I mean, we often, when we have pain, predict these really awful negative things like, oh no, I'm having a pain episode. This is going to, you know. Never going to end. It's never going to end. I'm broken. I'll never get better. Nothing's ever going to help me. You know, the rest of my life is shot. I'm never going to achieve my goals. And, and that's so depressing. If you think about what that does to your emotional state, you know, thoughts impact emotions and thoughts impact the body 100% of the time because the brain and body, side note, are always connected. The brain is connected to the body 100% of the time. Your thoughts and emotions always impact the way you feel. So we always also try and target cognitive strategies when we go after pain because what science shows is that these negative catastrophic thoughts turn up pain volume. So when you start thinking things to yourself like, I'm broken, I'll never get better, this will never end, what you're actually doing is amplifying your pain. So yeah, we teach a ton of strategies, cognitive, behavioral, lifestyle, medicine. We try and go after all the biopsychosocial things. Cheat Codes is brought to you today by Global Blood Therapeutics. GBT is a biopharmaceutical company committed to discovering, developing, and delivering life-changing treatments that provide hope to underserved patient communities, including sickle cell disease. GBT is grounded by a mission-driven culture and built with a team of experienced and passionate people committed to making a difference in the communities it serves. Cheat Codes is grateful to GBT for supporting today's episode and for serving the sickle cell community. I mean, you've unpacked so much in, in, in this last sort of 20 minutes that uh, I have, I feel like I could talk to you all day. Let's um, do it. <laughs> so, you know, uh, one of the things that our, pati our patients tell us sometimes, uh, our patients will just break your heart, right? They're going through just such a devastating disease and, and truly suffer from, you know, this feeling of being the stepchild in medicine, you know, like people don't want to take care of sickle cell patients and they feel like they come into the emergency room and, you know, their pain is um, diminished. It's sort of, maybe diminished is not the right word. It's sort of uh, trivialized, right? They, they're sort of treated like, okay, you know, well, let's see how things go. We're not going to treat you aggressively. And patients are out here kind of saying, well, well, wait a minute. Like, I'm the expert of my body. You know, like, I, I know this. Like, I've been, this story has played out in my life many times already. I know how my pain feels. I know how my sickle cell pain feels. I know what I need to make it better. And sometimes when we approach them, I'm going to go back to that question of Dr. Mike's. Sometimes when we approach them on attacking pain in ways that they haven't before, that, you know, changing the blueprint, 
sometimes you you have trouble walking this line of hey i believe you i believe that you're in pain like i know that this is real and i trust that this is real i know that you're going through the worst possible thing but hear me out on other things that we could do and why changing the blueprint is important i wonder what your experience has been in situations where you've had to convince patients that what they're doing is not working and and why being innovative is important particularly while they're in pain yeah you, you bring up such a important and good point so um I try never to convince my patients of anything. I let them convince me. It's it's part of motivational interviewing, but but I do think it's important for people to tell me that what they're doing isn't working. And I know that if they're in the ER, what they're doing isn't working. They're if they're coming to you or if they're coming to me, they're literally telling you what I'm doing isn't working, I need help. So once they've told me that what they're doing isn't working, I I use that and I run with it. Like what are the things we need to do differently? The problem is, and both of you know this and that's why we're talking about it today, nobody has ever had pain explained to them, ever. The question I first ask my patients when they walk in the door is, You've been in pain for seven years. Has anyone ever explained to you how pain works? And everybody says no. A hundred percent of people say no. No one has ever explained pain to me. None of us, like patients, providers, like we don't get taught about pain. This is true. Like 96% of medical schools have zero pain education. That is a real statistic. I can cite the paper. I mean, it's just crazy. So if, if, you know, if, healthcare providers, including me, don't get trained in pain. I mean, all the three of us have gone down the rabbit hole and we've done it, right? But if healthcare providers aren't getting pain education, how the heck are our patients ever going to understand their pain? So I usually ask people if what they're doing is working, they always say no. I ask them if anyone's ever explained pain to them, they get understandably indignant and they say no. And I use that as a springboard to explain that you've been lied to your whole life. You have been lied to. You have been told that your pain is biomedical. It isn't completely not. And by the way, just to say, Big Pharma has billions of dollars to market to you the sickle cell patient that your pain is purely biomedical and if you believe them if you believe them and they want you to you are going to for the rest of your life buy pills to treat your pain and guess what research shows that that is never ever going to be sufficient and that's why here you are in the er and that's why here you are 10 years later and your pain is still awful because Big Pharma wants you to believe that pills are the answer, and they're, they're not. And by the way, I am not anti-medication at all, especially for acute episodes of pain. Thank God for medication. I am a scientist. I love medication. Um, but for long-term chronic pain, science tells us that that isn't the answer, and it's not sustainable, and it's not going to work long-term. And there's you know a, a, an abundant amount of research that shows that over time, a lot of these medications actually can sensitize the brain to pain. And by that, I mean sensory input to the body from the body is going to actually be amplified and feel worse. So you know we have to start approaching pain from a more integrative, biopsychosocial manner. Otherwise, the pain is just going to stay the same. It's never going to change. I think that's a good point. I, I would like to clarify a little bit there. We're talking mostly about pain medicines or medicines to treat pain um, yes. and not disease modifying therapy. So, you know, if, if you broke, if you broke your leg and you need surgery on your leg to fix it, 
like you should correct, do that if, if there's a you know a medicine that's gonna stop your disease from progressing or tissue damage that's also going to help with your pain but a lot of the medicines that we use to kind of mask pain or make pain more tolerable um, over the long run they, they don't solve the problem and these are things like narcotics and I think though like what you brought up is a huge important point I think we've put all of this pressure on our patients to solve their pain the patients should do CBT the patients should you know think about what their triggers are and try to avoid them um, but I, I think, you know, a lot of this has implications for what we can do as providers, what caregivers can do. You know, if we know stress at home can cause pain and you're a caregiver, you know, maybe it's a family a family dynamic that has to change and the caregivers also have to be involved in that. If it's, you know, I think we see all the time our patients have to deal with, you know, getting treatment. Or, or living with dignity because they can't have both. They go to the ER and or, or or they go to a provider and they feel like there's no there's no trust there. They're talked down to, and so those kind of things also contribute to pain. And and they're things that we can address as providers. And I I saw that you have some online courses and really a, a lot of good um, information for providers and for parents and caregivers about. Um, pain and, and how to manage pain. Yeah, it's this untreated thing. When we talk about pain, like you said, we put the onus on our patients. And, you know, for those of us who work with kids, that that's like a big burden to put on children. Like, by the way, your pain is your problem and you need to figure out how to manage it. Like, what a message is that? There's a lot of stuff that goes on at home. What I say to parents and caregivers is, you know, there's a lot of ways of treating pain. And one is this front door method where we have our patients come in and see a variety of different multidisciplinary providers, like a pain psychologist and a biofeedback provider, you know, and a physician, and we manage pain that way. But there's also this backdoor way of managing pain and caregivers and parents can play a huge role in helping pain. Like there's like, there's a million different ways of doing that. And one, like you said, is reducing conflict at home. Um, Another one that I like to talk about, which is completely counterintuitive and often sort of difficult to digest from a caregiver perspective, is this idea of transferring power back to the person living with pain. So a lot of the um, parents and caregivers I work with understandably and lovingly are doing a lot of things for their children. So like, I'm working with a 16-year-old right now. He has something called complex regional pain syndrome. It's hard for him to walk. He's 17, and his parents are bathing him. And what that's actually doing, while it's loving and generous and tender, what it's actually doing is giving this child the message that he is disabled, that he has no power. And, And pain does take power away. That's exactly what it does, and that's why it's so important and helpful for caregivers and parents to to help give power back to the person living with pain. So when you say to a kiddo, like, yes, I know you have daily pain and I believe in your ability to bathe yourself, what you're actually doing is giving him his power back. So I know that's sort of an extreme example, but there's a lot of things like that that we can coach caregivers and parents and healthcare providers also to do that will help, you know, re reinfuse people living with pain with a sense of power and agency. Yeah, I think that's really important. I mean, we see a lot of caregivers, you know, particularly moms who are really protective of their kids. They're really trying to do the best. They're advocating for their kids. Um, But sometimes that dynamic makes the the kids, you know, not develop autonomy, not, not develop that empowerment and require, 
you know, more, more care. And I, I think, you know, obviously no parent wants to do that. They're not doing it on purpose, but I, I think having the ability to point out that dynamic and give them strategies to change it is great. So is, is that something, um, caregivers can sign up for this workshop and, and, and learn about? Um, the workshops I developed are for healthcare providers, but I'm sort of going down this rabbit hole with creating workshops for parents of kids with pain also. So, um, the answer is not so yet, stay tuned, unfortunately, right? but stay tuned. Yeah. I, uh, I, I just gotta, I've gotta say, I mean, I've talked to many pain specialists, but I've really never heard somebody speak about pain the way you're speaking about it. And, 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 and the way that you're creating, um, allyship in addressing pain in such a complicated sort of disease process that sickle cell disease is it, it, it's it's refreshing I've, I've got to say that it's just super super refreshing to hear the way that you speak on pain um, so thank you for that number one but that begs the next question which is how 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 did Dr. Zofnis become a pain doctor I mean like what what drove you to this what what's she the, want to move what's, to Detroit what's your inspiration <laughs> I mean if your inspiration is you know, delicious food, coney dogs, great <laughs> Middle Eastern cuisine, then come to Detroit. That's fine. Um, but what really, what drives you? What, what? How did this all start? Yeah, I. so I always wanted to live at the intersection of all these things. I wanted to live at the intersection of medicine and neuroscience and psychology and science writing. And for a while, I wanted to do pediatrics. Like, I just wanted to do all these things. And when I was, um, I wanted to do an honors thesis when I was an undergrad at Brown University, and I had a mentor who has since passed of cancer. She was amazing. She said, um, I want to link you up with, you know, one of our neuroscientists. He's doing research on pain and pain management. And, um, you know, as a kid who had had chronic pain, I was terrified of pain. I think most humans are. That's like a normal, natural response to pain is fear. Um, but I thought maybe if I understood it, I would be less scared of it. So I did my honors thesis with this amazing, really smart guy. And I just went down the rabbit hole. I learned everything that I could. And then I sort of went away from it. And I got a master's in psychology at Columbia. And I got a PhD at UCSD. And I was doing all this research on cognitive behavioral therapy. Um, and, and it wasn't actually until I did my postdoc that I circled back around. I did some of my postdoctoral training in what's called mindfulness-based stress reduction for chronic pain and chronic illness. And at the time, I had chronic leg pain. And I remember thinking, mindfulness for pain? What do they, do they think I'm like, what do they think this is? Like, my pain is real. It's from a running injury, you know. Um, and I didn't believe in it, despite the fact that I had studied pain. And part of the training involved doing an entire course of mindfulness-based stress reduction, which, by the way, has abundant evidence for pain reduction. And lo and behold, as I engaged in the training, and I was a participant, you know, in my own training, and my pain dramatically changed. And then I went down the rabbit hole again. And I ended up linking up with some really smart physicians at UCSF who asked me to come give a couple of talks on cognitive behavioral therapy for pain. Um, and I just, I became addicted. I mean, what ended up happening was they started sending me patients. And the first patient they sent me was a 16-year-old who had been in pain for four years. And he was bedridden. And he had been on 40 medications for his pain. And he had seen like something like 15 different specialists. And after six weeks of cognitive behavioral therapy, his whole, like so much had changed for him. Like he was out of bed. He was walking. His goal was to get back to soccer and to get back to school. And like, it was like, 
the dramatic change within six weeks was so mind bending. But, but what ended up happening was like over about three or so months of treatment, he went back to school, he went back to soccer, he got his life back, he got asked to prom by two girls two two <laughs> girls and you know and now he plays ultimate frisbee in college and i just i became an addict like when you see that sort of transformation in a child you you realize the you realize how how poorly pain is being managed how terribly it's being mismanaged and you realize the impact that you can have when you talk about pain differently and when you explain to to people living with pain that they can have so much more power over their bodies than they ever realized so so it's just my life's work. Like I love doing it. I'll never do anything else. I just think it's so important to communicate, you know, this, this, the science of pain. It's fascinating. And it's also something that we all deserve to understand. Again, pain's this ubiquitous human experience. We all have it. We're all going to have it at some point in our future. And like, don't we deserve to understand how to have power over our bodies? For sure. That's such an empowering message. It was awesome. I think we could go on for another hour, but uh, we're we're getting close to uh, to time here. Is there any anything um, you want to leave our warriors with? Yeah, I I want to say that you have more control and power over your body than you thought. If this is interesting to you and you think it might be useful to you, the pain management workbook is out there. It's on Amazon. It's affordable and accessible. Those are two words that are very important to me, affordable and accessible. And then there's the chronic pain and illness workbook for teens. Also, I want to suggest to everybody that you try biofeedback. We didn't have a chance to talk about what it is. It's a really effective treatment for pain, biofeedback. There are biofeedback providers out there. It's hugely effective for pain. It connects your brain with your body in all sorts of cool ways. And thank you guys for inviting me on. I think it's so important to talk about sickle cell pain. Oh, it was it was so great having you on. And, uh, An honor and a, a pleasure, honestly. Thank you so much. And it's good to have one more, one more Dr. Z around, so... Um, <laughs> follow Dr. Zafnis at Dr. Zafnis um, on Twitter, right? Dr. Yeah. at Dr. Zafnis, Z-O-F-F-N-E-S-S. Yeah, I joined Twitter during the pandemic. It's been a lot of fun to meet people that way. Yeah, I just I just followed you right now, so I'm excited to to follow you through your feed and and see what you're up to. Awesome. Great. And yeah, I'm also on Instagram at the real docs off. I got nervous. I couldn't think of a better name. So that's my name on Instagram. <laughs> and I also have a really, I have a dorky website with a ton of resources. If people want more resources, books and articles and apps, and it's just my last name at softness.com. And there's a resources page with a lot of f- free stuff, websites, apps, links to guided audio, all sorts of stuff. Great. Check it out. Right. Well, that's awesome. Yeah. Warriors, make sure you get to Dr. Zafnis's page. Check out all her resources, healthcare providers, medical students, everyone who's out there that's listening to this. Dr. Zafnis is the real deal. Go check her out on all platforms. Dr. Zafnis, it's been a pleasure. Thank you. All right, Warriors, we're going to move into our segment of the word of the day. We've had a lot of cool words of the day over the last several episodes. You know, we always talk about sickle cell disease being a biopsychosocial disease, man, touching every realm of people's lives. So today's word for you is one that I think we don't talk about enough in sickle cell disease. And it's kind of interestingly, I think, a little stigmatized in sickle cell disease. It's something that patients can use as a resource that actually may help them do better with pain, do better with sickle cell disease in general. 
You know, and it really focuses on the mental health of sickle cell disease patients. It's an intervention really for their mental health. That mental health translates sometimes into biologic health, right? Medical health. Where am I going? So uh, this fits with our our whole program today, but I, I think you're going to cognitive behavioral therapy. That's right, CBT. That's a mouthful. But I, I think, you know, you always talk about sickle cell as a biopsychosocial disease. And I think the CBT or cognitive behavioral therapy really gets gets to that. Also, I think it's good because it's, it's focused a lot on things that a person can do themselves. So it's, it's really sort of a, a set of skills that you can develop to deal with things. And, and it doesn't have to be pain. Um, but we often talk about it in, in the context of pain. And basically, it's, it's a way of making yourself aware of that biopsychosocial context of things that you're going through, right? So there's behaviors, that's the B in CBT, that we have that impact our thoughts and our feelings and impact our biology too so you know it might be that you have pain and that's stressing you and so then you start thinking about all the things you're not going to be able to do tomorrow that you were supposed to get done and the the bad outcomes that are going to come with that so that's the thoughts and then that gives you some bad feelings like now you have dread and anxiety about that and then that feeds more back into the pain then yeah. you don't sleep, and that's a behavior because you've right. got this uh, this dread and, and this pain, and, and then it, it, it becomes like a feedback loop that makes you uh, sort of spiral down. The, yeah. your, your behaviors are contributing to thoughts and, and feelings that are contributing to your biological process, that, and, and this sort of tries to flip it on, on its head and say, okay, that, that can happen. What can we do about it? And, you know, we can't change the biology very much, but we can change our behaviors, we can change our thoughts, and we can change our feelings about things. So, you know, this isn't always easy. Like if you're, you know, going through something hard and you're having pain, how are you going to feel good about that or have positive thoughts about it? So, you know, maybe the easiest thing is to change our behaviors. Can we, can we make ourselves get sleep? Um, but then also try to change our thoughts. You know, I'm not going to catastrophize about this. I'm not going to go to the darkest place. I'm not going to think all of the bad things about it. I'm going to try to think positive things and do the things I can do to help and have better feelings about that. And then instead of it spiraling down, it can spiral up. And, and it can, you know, actually allow you to, to cope with this physical thing that's real, that, that's causing you problems, better. People use this for a lot of things. Some people um, have issues with anxiety or they have alcohol and drug problems or they have marital problems or eating disorders or um, any, any number of, of issues where it, you can get into this vicious cycle where something happens you know, you have thoughts and and feelings that don't work well with that, and maybe maladaptive behaviors that come out of that, and that makes the problem worse. Um, yep. So you can use CBT, and this is usually something you would do with a psychologist or a therapist to say, 
okay, when you have pain, tell me about tell me about that pain episode. What was going on when when it started? What you know? What were you thinking? What kind of feelings did that did that have? Oh, then you then you stayed up late googling what are the worst things that could be. Do you think that helped make it better, or do you think maybe you could have done something different? Maybe maybe something different is mindfulness exercises. Maybe it's uh, deep breathing. Maybe it's relaxation techniques. Maybe it's focusing your thoughts on um, some positive thing in your life that you're happy about. And by doing that, you can actually change the, the physical experience of all of this. So the pain, the trigger, the, the thing that's causing the problem doesn't change, but how you respond to it, how much it hurts you can change. I think you could listen to that and say, oh, that's a bunch of psychology mumbo jumbo. Um, but I, I think it works and, and you know, it's not, it's not the same thing for everybody. So maybe you, you, you don't like doing mindfulness techniques. Maybe you have a hard time switching from negative thinking to positive thinking, but maybe you can go to bed early every night. Maybe you can drink enough water, change your behaviors. So really it's, it's coming up with, you know, a personalized approach talking to your therapist, talking to your doctors about the things that get you into a bad place and coming up with a personalized set of tools that you can use to, to maybe not make that spiral down, but make it, you know, easier to cope with. So I think it's a powerful tool and, uh, you know, it looks different for everybody. Um, but it's, it's, uh, I, I think something, um, that we should use more that we should talk to our patients about more and we really need more you know psychology specialists who can who can use these tools and and uh work work with our warriors to get the most out of them i love it i love it dr mike thank you for introducing us to a sort of new but hopefully not new for long concept for some of our warriors uh warriors ask your doctor about cbt ask them about how you can access cbt and uh, keep pushing. Let's treat every part of the sickle cell spectrum. Body, mind, and spirit. So that's the word, CBT, Cognitive Behavioral Therapy. Love it. On to the next one. Dr. Callahan, there's a lot of people in uh, the field of sickle cell disease who I respect tremendously. I mean, all, all, of, all of these allies of ours are fighting the good fight for sickle cell patients in different ways. And and there's no shortage of individuals like that, uh, thankfully, who are on our side, who've assembled in this universe to push forward and try to make things better. One of those people is Dr. Charles Jonasant. Dr. Charles Jonasant has been somebody who I've, um, I feel honored to share the sickle cell disease space with. Uh, it, it's, it's, it makes me happy knowing that there's people like him out there. This is also a plug, shamelessly, to anyone who's listening to tell Dr. Charles Jonasant to come be on Cheat Codes that we're yep. talking about Open him invitation. Today. We'd love to have him. Any single day of the week, shoot me a text, send me a message. Charles, we need you on the podcast. We want to talk to you. You're, you're the MVP, man. You're the real MVP. We've been waiting. So today I want to spend a little bit of time, Dr. Mike, talking about something that Dr. Charles Jonasant has been working on. In fact, has received a lot of funding from the Patient 
Centered Outcomes Research Institute. So PCORI funded Dr. Charles Jonasant for a fantastic, fantastic idea that Dr. Mike is going to walk us through. Yeah, I, th- I thought this would be a great spin on our red cell research review. You know, sometimes we go through phase three clinical trials. We've talked about case reports, review articles, all different kinds of of research. I think today we're going to talk about research that's ongoing. I love this research, and, and uh, Dr. Jonasson is, uh, I, I think, got a beautiful project here, and, and as is the case with a lot of good projects, it's a big collaboration. So he's worked with uh, Sickle Cell 101 and the Sickle Cell Consortium, Children's Sickle Cell Foundation, Sickle Cell Warriors, funding from PCORI, a lot of warriors involved in this. It's a really cool project. It's a a study out of the University of Pittsburgh. And this study is is trying to test out two different tools to help our warriors deal with their sickle cell. So this is for people who are having regular pain, like daily pain. um, And they want to... Which we know is a lot of people. Yeah, for sure, for sure. And so it's a, a remote study, so you don't have to live in Pittsburgh or go to Pittsburgh even. And, you, you know, you will love this, Dr. Z. You're always talking about getting inside people's little rectangles. Yeah. Um, so they do that. They they employ an app, health coach. They kind of try to tailor it to, to what works best for you. They can, they can, you can have phone conversations. You can just text back and forth. But they're really testing out two different ideas one that we've been talking about today is cognitive behavioral therapy skills and the other is disease education and this is done for warriors by warriors so you're not you're not getting disease education from somebody who's never had a pain episode like dr callahan you're getting disease education from hertz nazaire right um who you know can go into how he's handled things, approaches he's taken. So, so you, you either do a, you know, sort of a, a curriculum, like a study of lessons about sickle cell from warriors and sickle cell 101, or you get randomized to do cognitive behavioral therapy. And you track your pain, your quality of life um, over time, and they're going to try to see which one of these strategies works better. I think they're both probably going to work great. And they're, they're doing this through a remote app and uh, tracking through that and, and really uh, working with people with a health coach through this app. So I'm so excited about this study. I'm, you know, we, we don't have results yet, but I can't wait to hear them. And Hopefully we get to hear them directly from uh, our colleague at uh, the University of Pittsburgh. For sure. And uh, follow this study. You know, if you're interested, um, they have a, a website. It's cor- charisma c-a-r-i-s-m-a dash study dot pit p-i-t-t dot e-d-u um they have videos on there about it a lot of information you can see if you qualify and contact them if you're not interested you know hopefully we'll have results and we'll talk about that on a on a cheat codes episode but i i think this is really really important you know with a lot of our drug therapies we do placebo-controlled trials. We do head-to-head controlled trials to see what works best. Um, I, I think these things like disease education and CBT are so important 
but often they don't get the same kind of rigorous testing to see what's the best approach how can we do it the best way and uh, so I, I love this study um, and I can't wait to hear more about it and hear the results all right dr. Z now on to uh, my favorite part of cheat codes where I get to hear uh, what's happening what's happening in sickle cell what's going on in dr. Z's clubhouse meetings that I, I, I don't get to sit in on or uh, what what kind of excitement's going on in the uh, the Twitter sphere tell us dr. Z what's what's happening so dr. Mike well first of all thanks I'm, I'm glad that this is the your favorite part of this podcast it's certainly not mine but I do like to talk so you know if I talk too much in this uh, in this segment, you're gonna have to you're gonna have to pull me back a little here. You know, we've been talking about CBT mental health during this episode. Um, we've had Dr. Zoffness give us her take on uh, mental health and the role of mental health in sickle cell disease and disease in general. You know, the Twitter sphere, Facebook clubhouse you know this is a topic that comes up all the time right we know that the mental well-being of warriors is tested time and time again not only by the disease that they have but also by a fractured healthcare system that's not able to care for them in the way that they need to be cared for their mental health is tested by physicians who are dismissive and non-empathetic to what they're going through. Their mental health is tested by crumbling social interactions with family, loved ones, partners that are subject to sort of the collateral damage that sickle cell disease's war on their body causes. Mental health is a big issue. But time and time again, I've also seen the discussion come up on social media that, that warriors know. They know that mental health is a problem. They know that mental health is something that needs to be addressed. But it's stigmatized. There's a huge stigma, right? It's all in your head, right? The, it's all in your head concept is a really difficult one to navigate. We are presenting really compelling evidence and talking about really compelling studies that show that efforts to improve mental health help warriors. They help patients in pain. Sometimes I worry about, though, navigating through that as a physician, right? Just personally. If I'm having this conversation with a warrior who's in pain, understanding the context of this conversation happening on a scaffold of a healthcare system that already treats them poorly, that already looks at them as the black patient, the Hispanic patient who is here getting opioids. How do I make sure that the label of mental health or the label of it's all in your head doesn't get used against the patient? Right? How do I still convey to my colleagues, how do I convey to the healthcare system that organic pain exists, organic pain is real, organic pain needs to be respected, sickle cell patients are having the physiologic equivalent of I can't breathe in their body. 
Nothing's ever going to take that away, right? That's always going to be the case. But how do we tread carefully on this line to make sure that that stigma doesn't result in further decreasing their access to their rightful care? That's sort of the conversation that I wanted to bring to you today, Dr. Mike. You always have interesting takes on my very esoteric thoughts. So I'm curious to hear from you. No, this is uh, this is something that's, I, I think, a challenge for all of us um, in healthcare, especially. But um, I think everybody. I I think you know, m- mental health is a big term. Everybody deals with mental health. I I think as a culture, you know, over my life, we've gotten a little better about thinking about this. We talk about things like work-life balance. We we talk about taking care of yourself. We talk about burnout. We, um, and you know, I think that's good, but I think a stigma still remains. And you know, there's a spectrum of mental health, right? Like we all have a bad day. Um, you know, we we all have stress. We all have anxiety. All of that is part of the normal variability of being a person. But there's an end of the spectrum where it becomes really a disease. And we have a book that sort of defines those things. It's the DSM-5, and, you know, you can check off the boxes and see if you have major depressive disorder, but it's on a spectrum from, you know, I get bummed out sometimes to I have a, a, you know, a mental health diagnosis, and, you know, how you're going to treat that and and, uh, what you need to do about those things is different, but I think the label also is different, right? If you carry a, a label diagnosis of major depressive disorder, there, there's some stigma attached to that, and I think people feel that very person personally. And I, I think the, the point you bring up about, you know, going into the hospital with that, th- there was a, a really good book I, I think I brought up before in, in our podcast called How Doctors Think. And I, I think, you know, doctors fit patterns. And so if, if you come in with major depressive disorder or anxiety disorder, you know they're gonna wanna they're gonna wanna fit that pattern and say oh well this 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 pain is anxiety it's not pain it's it's anxiety we need to get them to be less anxious but just because you have one diagnosis doesn't mean everything fits in that and I think that's something that you know in chronic disease especially sickle cell we always have to have to think about and so you you don't want to get pegged in in that and I I, I you know I talk to medical students and residents and fellows about this all the time that you know we need to listen to the patients we need to check our predispositions to put somebody in a box and really think about the whole picture and and not just attribute it to to the shiniest object nearby because we'll make mistakes that way um but i i think too there's another side of that which is you know, as we talk to our warriors in clinic and we say, you know, there is a, there is a psychological component to, um, your, your physical pain. Um, I mean, there has to be, right? There, there is, there, there has to be. Yeah. It's processed I mean, in the, in the, uh, it's processed in the brain, right? Yeah. I, I think, you know, Dr. Dr. Zoffness said it's all in your head. Yeah. That that's not a that's not a pejorative. That's not a judgment. That's not saying you're not experiencing the pain. The nerves all attach into your head, and where you feel it is in your head. If you didn't have a brain, you wouldn't experience any pain. 
and she talked about you know turning up the dial so a, a stimulus that you know causes pain if you run it through an amplifier you you might experience a lot of hurt because because it's been amplified and so that same stimulus you experience more pain because of of the way you're processing it and and really what's going on in your head and i think it's very hard to communicate that sometimes that i'm not saying the pain's in your head and you're crazy and it's not real i'm saying the pain is very real but maybe there are things we can do to help you experience it in a less less painful way and you know it's very important when we have that conversation right, right. that we're on the same team that we're on the yep. same team and and it can it can create a situation where we're not where where the um you know the worry I'm, I'm seeing in clinic feels like i'm minimizing or i'm uh miscategorizing what they're feeling and of course that's not what i'm trying to do but when that divide comes up it, it, it can be hard to overcome and we really you know need to be a team and and be able to communicate that in a way that's positive and productive and and that that can be a challenge Absolutely. So I, I, you know, I, I think because of the way society is, because of the stigma we've placed on mental health, um, these conversations are tough. Yeah, no, I agree. I agree. But they're important conversations to keep having. And I think that's how you destigmatize it, right? You destigmatize it by talking about it and talking about it regularly, talking about it frequently and, and talking about it the way we talk about, you know, um, anything else in clinic, the way we talk about um, meningitis, the way we talk about acute chest syndrome, the way we talk about priapism, right? It's, it's the same realm. It's just, it's, it's uncomfortable always talking about things you don't understand fully. And the truth of the matter is we don't really understand the brain. We don't understand the way pain is processed. We don't understand mental health in general as uh, physicians, as human beings, as um, scientists, we, we don't we don't know everything about it. So it's always uncomfortable to have those conversations, but it doesn't mean it's not real and it doesn't mean it's not important. That is what I have in what's happening now for you today, my friend. All right, Dr. C, that wraps up another dope episode of Cheat Codes, a sickle cell podcast, man. I am... Um, I can't believe we got on Dr. Zoffness. That was awesome. That was fantastic. And I, I liked a whole episode about uh, mental health. I think we need to do a few more of these. Yeah, I agree. I agree. One episode certainly is not enough. We need to bring in our um, mental health colleagues and have these discussions uh, really openly and honestly. And I think that's how you make progress, right? For sure. So really quickly, before we sign off, let's thank our sponsors. Global Blood Therapeutics for sponsoring this episode of Cheat Coats. Yeah, that's true. That's true. And uh, with that, Warriors, keep doing your thing. Keep doing your thing. Keep living well with Sickle Cell. Follow me at Dr. Z Sickle Cell. And me at Imagineer. You can also follow Cheat Codes at Cheat Codes Pod on Instagram. And um, hang in there. Keep doing your thing. We'll catch you next time. Peace.